Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men. And we start with the correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. Today, we'll be hearing from Bruce C.E. Fleming, founder of the True 316 Project. He's a former academic dean and professor of practical theology. The foundation of the True 316 Project is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book, Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 to 3. Do you know what the 11 Hebrew words mean that God spoke to the woman in the Garden of Eden? Bruce and Joy put that and more in the Book of Eden, Genesis 2 to 3. We invite you to get a copy today and make sure you have a solid foundation for understanding the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible. It turns out when Genesis 3.16 becomes clear, all the other passages become clear too. You can learn more at our website, true316.com. That's tru316.com. And now enjoy today's episode of The Eden Podcast. The focus of this episode is the 11 Hebrew words in Genesis 3.16. And we're taking this from study guide number seven, from chapter seven in the Book of Eden. It is sometimes more important to get certain verses exactly right. These are the ones that are built on and referred to by other verses in the Bible. These are the ones where our beliefs and our practices are greatly influenced by what the verses say. For example, let's take John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What does the word world mean in this verse in John 3.16? It means the sum total of all the people ever born on earth. We are the world. And Jesus died for all of us. He also died for each one of us. We learn that from the word whoever. But I've heard of some who think the world means only trees and water and animals, the ecosystem around us, that world. Well, that's an important subject, but it's not the subject of John 3.16. To take world to mean the cosmos is not a serious interpretation. Then there's the problem of seriously obscure words. Uh, Joanne, what would you do if I said... Let's meet at the par bar. Well, I would hope I know where the par bar is. <laughs> That's right. Where, where, where is the par bar? Well, the par bar is in First Chronicles twenty six eighteen, and in the King James version, I'll read you what it says there: at par bar westward, four at the causeway, and two at par bar. When I first came across this verse in reading the Old Testament, it didn't bother me at all. I just, I think, I just skipped over it. When someone pointed it out to me later and asked me about it, we both agreed that we had no idea what a par bar was or where it might be. But it didn't seem to be much of a problem because the verse was simply giving details on a location and there was a par bar involved. Later research has discovered that the par bar was a location we could call a colonnade or a courtyard. Thus, the New International Reader's Version says this, Two Levite guards were at the courtyard to the west, and four were at the road. That makes a lot more sense than at Parbar westward, four at the causeway, and two at Parbar. But when we get to Genesis 3.16, we come across another very important verse. Every one of the 11 words God speaks to the woman is loaded with meaning. 
the implications of which are very important for all women, all marriages, all people, for all time, everywhere. So let's go there to Genesis 3.16. We need to do this because just like the word parbar wasn't translated with precision and clarity, even so some of the words in Genesis 3.16 haven't been translated properly. And each word makes a difference. So starting on page 103 in the Book of Eden, my paperback copy here, let's start with this. Joy was six months pregnant when we arrived in hot, steamy Africa. Then she finally gave birth to our first child in a mission hospital in the rainforests of northwestern Congo. Around sunset on a Sunday evening after 36 hours of exhausting contractions and hard work, Joy was driven across the mission station grounds to the hospital in the pickup truck of the doctor who was to do the delivery. A nurse and I were on either side of Joy as we timed her breathing. She received no medication of any kind. I admired her great effort, which was followed by exhilaration, as Joy gave birth to our wonderful baby girl, Christy. Was it a cursed experience, I asked Joy the next morning as we looked back on it? No, it wasn't, but it certainly required a lot of effort. Joanne, can you take us into the exercises now? Absolutely. That brings us into exercise number one, which is to identify the bad news and also the good news God gave to the woman. And the first question asks us to read Genesis 3, 14 through 19, but using the corrected translation of Genesis 3, 15 through 17, which are provided in the book. And the first question we ask underneath this is what bad news did the woman hear? She did hear some. And the first little piece was in Genesis 3, 15. So she's been attacked, and uh, she and the man have hid themselves. They've made uh, aprons for themselves best as they could. And the man has betrayed her and has attacked God and has attacked her. And she's been asked by God, what did you do? And she said, well, that voice came out of that serpent over there and deceived me, and I ate. And God took her words as truth, the first truth in a long series of lies. Got a lot, a huge fog of lies floating around in the Garden of Eden. But her words now introduce truth. And God takes her words, turns to Satan and the serpent, and says to him, Okay, uh, because you have done what she just said about you, cursed are you. And then he says, I am going to put enmity between the two of you, which I like to say is I'm going to confirm the two of you as combatants against one another. So the bad news is that she's going to have a combatant who's going apparently going to continue to be her combatant. That's in Genesis 3.15. There's also bad news in that her offspring, good news is that her offspring will crush Satan's head, but the bad news is that Satan will uh, bruise the heel of her offspring. Yeah, which is still bad news. Right. And in Genesis 3.16, there's also uh, a little bit of bad news. Right. Well, yeah. It's, so Joy has gone through in her doctoral dissertation, my wife, Dr. Joy Fleming, she went through the, the 11 Hebrew words here, and there's actually a, a good news, bad news. Let's see. In what order it goes? It goes bad news, good news, bad news, good news, good news, bad news. There's, a, there's an off on, off on black, white, black, white, whatever. There's, there's this alternating pattern throughout the whole passage. Very, very interesting as you look at it. And she, she unearthed that and made it very clear. What happens now is that in line one of Genesis 3.16, uh, 
God says to the woman, you are going to have sorrowful toil. The Hebrew word is itzabon, and that's bad news. How is it bad news? Well, God doesn't talk about it any more than that. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't, just doesn't, he just says it. He says, you will have itzabon. But then in 17, right away afterwards, when God speaks to the man, the woman understands what it's going to be. Because God says, because of you, I'm going to curse the ground. And when you do field work with your hands, you will experience itzabon, sorrowful toil. So the bad news that she hears in Genesis 3.16 is, and that's line one, word three, the bad news that she will experience is that she will experience itzabon. She will experience sorrowful toil. Now, that's a lot of news to have to digest, but she does also get some good news. So the next question asks, so what good news did the woman hear? Harba Arbe. What we have now is the first four words of Genesis 3.16. And in the line one, that's the first four words. In line one, God acts. He takes action. He's going to do two new things. In lines two, three, and four, he's going to teach, he's going to instruct, he's going to explain, but he's not going to take any new action. And so how, how does he act in line one? Well, we've got the same Hebrew word repeated twice in this phrase, harba arba, and you could translate that into English as multiplying, I will multiply. Literally, it's to multiply, I will multiply. We get that later on in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, with the blessing I bless you and multiplying, I multiply your offspring as stars of the heaven and as sand which is on the seashore. Now we had this verb to multiply back in Genesis chapter one, two, God blessed the man and the woman. He said, be fruitful and multiply. So when she has heard that she's going to be attacked by Satan and, but she's going to have offspring that will crush Satan's head, how is she going to do that? And God promises her, I'm going to multiply. You know, I'm really going to multiply by, because by saying it twice, that, that's called an infinitive construct. That means we're going to really have it done. So God is making a definite promise. I am going to bless you with, with this multiplied. Now, the first thing he says I'm going to multiply is the itzabon, which is not the good news. But the next thing he says is I'm going to multiply your haron. And that is good news. That's your conception or that's your pregnancy. Now, these two things, God's going to multiply the Itzabon and God's going to multiply the Haron, are, they're not clearly translated in our modern languages. That's why we need to true the verse. That's why we need to true 3.16. We need to see that God is multiplying one thing and another thing. In the King James Version in English, you can find this. There's a multiplying, I will multiply this and that comes across clearly. But in the family of all of our new modern translations, they've pushed those two words together as if they were what's called a hendiatus, where you can take two things and make one out of them. They've taken those two things and put them into one, and now they treat it as, an, as one thing. But it's not either the multiplied toil, sorrowful toil. It's not the possibility of the multiplied offspring. Instead, they come up with something else, and it's bad news, really bad news. I will multiply your pain in childbirth, which is just not faithful to the original words of the Hebrew at all, and gives us all kinds of terrible interpretations. What's he doing? Why is he, why is he treating her this way? What does that mean? Did she deserve it? Is he really a good judge? Is he taking the judgment of the man, blaming the woman? So we have to take very 
careful steps. What is this multiplying? Harba, arba. I'm going to multiply two things. I'm going to multiply your sorrowful toil. That's the bad news. And I'm going to multiply. I'm confirming that you will have conception of this blessed offspring who will crush Satan's head. Of course, we know that would be eventually Jesus Christ. It does bring us to the second question. How will having a mortal body, experiencing etzef, now affect the woman? And we continue in Genesis 3.16. We have some other scriptures to look at there too. Okay, before, before we get into that, I, I have to say that the people who cram the first two words in line one together into this kind of pain in childbirth, Oh, there's all kinds of versions that do it all kinds of ways. But what they do is they, they make God seem to stutter. They, they put the idea of painful, cursed childbirth, cursed in a really painful way in line one, and then they repeat it in line two. They'll say sorrow in line one and sorrow in line two. Or they'll say uh, labor in line one and labor in line two. Or toil in line one and toil in line two. And yet there's two different Hebrew words. In line one, it's itzabon, sorrowful toil, nothing to do with childbirth. In line two, it's etsev, which has to do with effort. And yes, it has to do with childbirth, but it's not the word labor. It's not the word toil. It's not the word sorrow. It's the word, the best word we can find in English is, is effort. And so we have to make a distinction between line one when God acts, has nothing to do with childbirth, process in that line. And then in line two, three, and four, as he teaches the woman, and in line two, he's teaching her about the effort that will be involved in, in having a baby. Now, she's going to have her first baby outside of the Garden of Eden. God knows that. And she's going to find that out. And so when he explains to her what it's going to be like to give birth to a child outside of Eden, she knows that in the day she eats of that fruit, she's going to die. Well, they have it keeled over like like Snow White when she ate the apple. And so maybe she's wondering, you know, when, when do I die? How does that happen? She hasn't heard the explanation yet when God's going to explain to the man that you're going to turn back into dust. So what does it mean? Well, one of the nice things, one of the very gentle things, one of the loving things that God does is he says, you're going to have etsev when you give birth. In other words, when you get birth pangs and you're getting all use of all kinds of new muscles to push out that baby, that is not death coming upon you. It's just simply etsev. It's effort. In ancient non-Christian, non-Jewish uh, traditions in mythology, they get really messy and they get really nasty when they're talking about childbirth. But this is clinical. It's clean. It's loving. And he simply says, with etsev, you will have, and that, now it's a good thing, you will have children. So the bad news is, yes, you're going to have this etsev effort. And the good news is you're going to have more than one child. You're going to have multiple children. When we try to cross-reference to understand what this word etsef means in other verses, and in, a, in our page 104 study guide that Joanne put together for us, we're going to compare with Psalm 127.2 and Proverbs 5.10. The problem is that these translators had their eye on Genesis 3.16 and the way they translated things incorrectly back in 3.16. Remember, they made God seem to stutter. He seemed to say, oh, you're going to have a terrible labor and you're going to have terrible labor two times. And so what they've done now is they've kind of played with the translation and how they render 
Psalm 127, 2, and, and Proverbs 5. So we have to go carefully. Just think of the word etsev as effort, and I think we'll be okay. Joanne, could you read Psalm 127, 2, and Proverbs 5, 10 for us? Certainly. I'm reading out of the New International Version, and Psalm 127, verse 2 says, In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. That's the etsev. They've translated it toiling. At least... Uh, there's consistency here because if we turn to Proverbs 5, verse 10, it says, Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another's, another man's house. So they've uh, translated the word toil both times from etsef. Right, but they're doing that. See, why? Why would you want to make etsev into toil? Well, because they have used the word toil in line one of Genesis 3.16. And they're going to use it again as a stutter step in line two. I think what we need to say is, look, uh, the word there is lechem, which has to be with bread of etzev, of effort in, in the psalm. And so the house of bread is Bethlehem. And uh, the bread of effort is what's going on in the psalm. So I prefer, and you have to be careful, let's not even use the word toil in these other parallel things. We don't have to. But they're, they're doing it, and again, this is the reason why we pay so much attention to Genesis 3.16, because downstream, people will, uh, depending on what they think Genesis 3.16 says, then they will even modify the lexical reference to Etsev later on down, down the line. So there's still some bad news to talk about with a mortal body, and it comes in Genesis 3.19. Well, in 319, she's learning lots of things as God's talking to the man in 17. She learns about the painful toil. She learns about that curse on the ground. What does that mean? Well, among other things, you're going to get thorns and thistles, etc. You're going to eat by the sweat of your brow. That's what's going to be the result of having to do the itzabon for the field work. And then you're going to turn into dust. So the bad news is that she's part of humanity right now. And she's going to have difficulty and, and work outside of the Garden of Eden. And she, too, is going to become mortal. Yeah, it's going to be hard going back to dust. Just the thought of it. We finally, this last piece of bad news here, it's found in Genesis 3.16, right at the end. And the question asks us to describe change in the man and how this was going to affect the woman. Well, it's going to affect her again in several ways. Let, let me just start reading with uh, Genesis 3.16. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrowful toil and your conception. With effort, you will give birth to children. Now, here's where we're going to find out about the change in the man. Your desire is for your husband, but he will rule over you. God addressed the matters of the woman's heart in a particular way, revealing both the woman's heart with regard to the man and the man's heart with regard to her. Her desire was still for him, but his desire was different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to find out how, because the next exercise asks us to analyze the heart motivations in both the woman and the man. So in the first part of this first question, it asks, how might Genesis 2, 23 through 25 inform how the word desire is to be understood in this context? We also have another scripture to look at. It's in uh, the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. You want to look that up for us? Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 7, verse 10, please. Sure. It's, it's a little verse. It just says, I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. It's the same exact word as found 
here in Genesis 3.16, the word that's translated desire. So that word in Hebrew is teshuka, and it only appears three times. We have teshuka in 3.16, we have teshuka over in Genesis 4, 7, and then we have teshuka in Solomon's, or Song of Solomon 7.10. Only two times does it talk about a human being. Once is for uh, her desires for her husband, and the other one is for uh, Solomon's desire for his wife. And so we have desire as a good thing. It's, a it's involved in a, in a married relationship, and it's a one lover for another lover. So it's, it's a good thing. Joy calls it, uh, Dr. Joy Fleming calls it uh, affection. I, I like to call it love. Yeah, that makes sense. Why is Genesis 4-7 not a good comparison verse then? Well, that's not, a, that's not about a human. It's, uh, it's talking about sin is crouching and it desires to have you. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a warning from God. It's a loving warning. It's look out, don't do that. Uh, be careful. And it's also not involved in the very detailed passage of Genesis chapter 2 and 3. So in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, we have that rainbow pattern. We have a chiasm where we have uh, echoing, repeating sections. So we have the entry into the Garden of Eden at the beginning of chapter 2, where the passage begins to talk about the garden. And then we have the exit from the Garden of Eden at the end of chapter 3. And in the middle, we have Genesis 2.25, the high point where they were together with each other and they were together with God. With each other, they were naked, and with God, they were not ashamed. We have that high point. So things get better and better as we go up the bell curve in Genesis chapter 2, and things get worse and worse as Satan attacks, and they're finally driven, the man is driven out of the Garden of Eden in chapter 3. All of that is neatly tied together and intimately tied together. When you get into chapter 4, we have a whole new passage. We have a whole new way that the chapters are written. There's a whole new way that we have the line of uh, the sin, sinful son that's talked about. And then we have the line of the faith-filled son that's talked about as we move through chapters four and chapter five. And this thing in verse, uh, this thing that's desiring is not human and it's sinful and it's not part of the passage. So it's really, people try to say, oh, we know what uh, happened to the woman because we can take this desire from chapter four and put it back in there. No, you don't read the Bible that way. You read, you start in the beginning and then you work your way out. And chapter four is later on, it's something else. It's not even human. Yeah, that's great. That really does help, actually. We're going to go into the second question. We start out with, again, going to that, that peak part in the chiasm or the rainbow. It's Genesis 2, 23 through 25. We're going to compare it with Genesis 3, 16, and we're going to ask... Well, what has changed in the man's heart? Well, the man knew that he was alone. He looked at all these different animals. He said, no, I'm not like a chicken. No, I'm not like a hamster. No, I'm not like an ostrich. None of these are like me. He couldn't talk to them. He couldn't fellowship with them like he could with God. He was alone, and that wasn't good. And then God puts him to sleep, and God creates the woman, and she opens her eyes and first knows God. So she and he and God have a relationship between each other, just like the man and God had a relationship, each of them, one to the other. Then God brings them together, introduces them, and marries them. And when God marries them, and in, well, first when God introduces them, the man says, well, now, she is like me. She's flesh like mine. She has bones just like mine. She and I, we go together. She's 
the female and I'm the male human. Here we are. We are the humans. So he was excited. He was happy. And they were together. They were naked and together before God. They were not ashamed. So things were going really well. We can see that in Genesis chapter 2. When you look at Genesis 3.16, what is this? God tells the woman, he has desire to rule over you now. So he looks at the woman's heart in line three. She has good desire toward her husband. But in line four, he has a bad desire. Not only is he now ruling over himself in the place of God, he rejected God as his ruler. He became his own ruler. But he's also going to reject God as her ruler, and he's going to insinuate himself into that. He's going to usurp God's position as ruler, and he's going to, he desires to rule over her himself. A lot of people read this as if God is telling the man, go rule over the woman. I have set up this divine system of patriarchy, and men should rule over women. That's not what's going on at all. He's not even talking to the man. He's talking to the woman. And he says, look out. He, his desire now is to rule over you. Wow. Well, that actually brings us to a very intriguing comparison here between in Genesis 2, verse 20, and Genesis 3, verse 20. In Genesis 2, verse 20, it says, So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. I'm reading from the New International Version. So that was Genesis 2, 20. But then... We come to Genesis 3.20, and it says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. What's happening there? Well, he's out of line here. And this is where, this is the very first moment now after God has stopped speaking, the very first moment that they have to react to God's judgment on the serpent and on the woman and on the man. And so this is the chance where he can repent. He can say, yeah, you're the serpent. The serpent went after, you know, just not only did he didn't deceive me, he convinced me and I rebelled along with the serpent and I don't want to do that anymore. All those kind of wonderful things could have happened, but that's not what he did. So if you compare it with Genesis chapter two, where the man gave names to the animals, there he called them each with a name. There's a naming formula that has these two words, to call and to name, kara and shem. And so he called them with a name sort of like I.W. Sir, Sir Lancelot. That was the name he gave them. And he did that as a ruler. He was superior to them. He was ruling over them. And he gave those underlings of his each a name. And the name he gave them, that was, that was their name. Now what he does in Genesis 3.20 is he turns around. Now, previously, God had called him the human. And he called her the human. He called them the humans. In Genesis 5.2, it says he called their name Adam. So he called them both Adam. They were Mr. and Mrs. Human, Mr. and Mrs. Adam. But now he goes and he takes the name Adam for himself and he gives her another name. And the way he gives it to her is a bad way. He rules over her. He slaps her down and, and slaps a name on her just like he slapped a name on the animals. And he says, yeah, I'm going to call you, uh, I'm going to call you Eve. And whatever reason he gave for the name that he chose was is not a, not, not a good point in his favor. It's the fact that he, he ruled over her in that negative way. By the way, when we, when we read through the passages, and the translators don't do us any help here, I have a Bible in front of me that, that uh, says at the beginning of uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it makes a big space, and it throws in some extra large words and says we've got a new section here, and it calls it Adam and Eve. 
Well, from this point in history, yeah, we know who they are. We, we know who Adam and Eve, what that couple was, what their names eventually came to be. But in Genesis chapter 2, that's not their names. Later on in 1 Timothy 2, Paul uses their names, Adam and Eve, out of place, talking about what happened in Genesis 2. And he did it for a point. Uh, my point here is that Adam and Eve should not be the names used in Genesis chapter 2 or 3 until we get up to 3.20 when the man saves it for himself. But in the copy of my Bible that I have, uh, I circled it here. Yeah, in Genesis 2.20, it says, but for Adam, no suitable, help, suitable helper was found. That shouldn't say that. It should say, but for the man, no suitable helper was found. And then later on in 3.17, my translation I'm reading right here, not our own, but this printed version I have in my hand, says, to Adam, he said, etc. No, that's not right. In 3.15, they get it right. It said, to the woman, he said. And in 3.17, they should say, to the man, he said. It's a big deal that he gives her the name Eve. And it's a big deal in the way he gives her the name Eve. Now, once we get to that point, we can call them Adam and Eve because that's how he treated her, and that's the name he res he reserved for himself. I have never heard until I read your book and also read Dr. Joy Fleming's research, I'd never really heard that distinction made in that way of uh, the man naming the woman and what that signified. The last question here talks about how the man had corrupted the meaning of God's words to them both in Genesis 1.28, when God was speaking to humanity. So God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God blessed them and he said to them, You, you two and all of your children in them, you rule over. And so this ruling over was a good thing. They were created to be rulers. God ruled over the humans, but the humans were to rule over all the lesser creatures. But to rule over one person over another, that doesn't make sense. Uh, when the man starts to try to rule over her, she's, she's faced with a real problem. Uh, God is supposed to rule over me. Uh, I've been having God rule over me. I want God to rule over me. What do I do with this man here who's trying to rule over me in God's place? It was a difficult situation that she was, she was put into. And so the man was out of line. He was out of place. He was not supposed to rule over the woman. Together, they were to rule over all of creation. Thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast. Do you have your own copy of the Book of Eden, Genesis 2-3, and our other books on the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible? Visit our website at true316.com. Do you want to go deeper? You're invited to enroll in the current study unit of True School. Take a look. Go to true316.com slash school.